Hello, and welcome to the 80s Movie Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of FilmJerk.com. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear and you haven't done so already, please make sure to rate and review this show on your favorite podcatching source. While a good review and rating won't increase our chances of being found or being a featured podcast on a podcatcher like uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it will potentially help increase the odds of someone who does find the show for the first time thinking that clicking play would be a good time investment for them. And it's something you can even do while you're listening to this episode. On this episode, we're going to discuss the mercifully short-lived return of the 3D movie craze. And as always, before we can get to the 1980s, we have to go back in time. I could go back before there were even motion pictures. In fact, I could go all the way back to 1832, seven years before the first public introduction of photography, to discuss stroboscopic discs, a crude form of animation, but that part alone would probably take longer than I wish the whole episode to be. So we'll fast forward to September 27th, 1922. We're in the Ambassador Hotel a few miles west of downtown Los Angeles, and producer-director Harry K. Farrell is presenting the first-ever 3D movie. The movie, called The Power of Love, was shot on two strips of black-and-white film through a special camera with two lenses, and the images would be combined into a single strip of color film during the printing phase, which would combine the two images and, using different colored filters on the film images and by wearing a special pair of glasses, would trick the brain into thinking it was viewing an image in three dimensions. The Power of Love told a story about a young woman who falls in love with the rival of a man her father has promised her hand in marriage to, and this screening was set up to demonstrate the potential of 3D as the next step in the evolution of the motion picture experience. In fact, the movie would be the first with multiple endings on the same print, as one could either see a happy or tragic ending to the story by closing one eye and watching the film through either only the red lens or the green lens on their special glasses. The film would be well-received, but the 3D process? Not so much. Farrell would set up a second screening of the movie for theater owners in New York City a few weeks later, but not a single theater operator wanted to take a chance on this new movie fad. In July 1923, future Gone with the Wind producer David O. Selznick would acquire the film for theatrical release, in 2D, with a new title, Forbidden Lover. It would never be seen in 3D again, and in time, both the 2D and 3D versions would become lost films. There would be other attempts at 3D movies during the 1920s, but none of them would take hold. A few months after Farrell failed to interest anyone in his 3D system, inventor Lawrence Hammond would get the owner of the Selwyn Theater in New York City to give his Teleview 3D system a chance. Along with a group of short films and a live demonstration of 3D shadows, Hammond's movie The Man from Mars would play for several weeks during December 1922 and January 1923, and contemporary reports from the entertainment trade publication Variety suggest New Yorkers found the novelty of a 3D movie interesting enough. But reviews for The Man from Mars were uniformly awful, and no theater would play the movie in 3D ever again. And, like with The Power of Love, The Man from Mars would be redistributed in 2D a few months later, and with a new title, Radiomania, 
and the 3D version of the film would become a lost film. However, the 2D version of The Man from Mars still exists today. The BFI National Archive, about 40 miles northwest of London, has what is believed to be the sole surviving print of the film. After the failure of his Teleview system, Lawrence Hammond would invent his namesake organ in 1934. It wouldn't be until Edwin Land's invention of the polarizing sheet in 1932 that 3D movies as a viable process would come to place. Land had originally invented his polarizing sheet to help reduce glare from car headlights, but he also understood how his Polaroid filters could be used in 3D photography. He would host a demonstration of his new 3D photography process at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City in January 1936 and would soon help filmmakers understand how the process could be applied to the movies. Many of the standards we understand about 3D movies would be set by land, including using a movie screen coated with a special kind of reflective silver paint in order to correctly reflect the images back to the audience. The first 3D film using Land's new system would premiere in the Chrysler Motors Pavilion at the 1939 World's Fair in New York City. Tune In Tomorrow was a black-and-white short that showed the construction of the then-new Chrysler building set to music. The film would prove to be so popular that Chrysler would remake the movie in color in 1940. But for the most part, 3D movies would remain a curio throughout the 40s, rarely seen outside of a specially built theater at an attraction like a World's Fair. But something would happen that would threaten the very existence of motion pictures, or at least, that's what the studios thought. Although television had been around in various forms for a number of years, five major networks, ABC, CBS, Dumont, NBC, and Paramount, had all started coast-to-coast broadcasting by 1949, and the number of American homes having purchased at least one television for their home had grown from less than half a million of sets sold in 1948 to two million in 1949, four million in 1950, and over 10 million by 1951. Meanwhile, weekly movie theater attendance had dropped from 90 million per week in 1948 to 46 million by 1951. The movies needed something new to keep people coming back. Some studios like 20th Century Fox leaned hard into what was being called the widescreen process. When television was created, it adopted the same aspect ratio for its screens, 1.33 times wider than it was tall, as it had been the motion picture standard for decades. This 1.33 to 1 aspect ratio had been dubbed the Academy Standard Ratio, and ironically, considering they owned one of the five major national broadcast networks, Paramount would also lean hard into preserving the cinema experience. Fox's widescreen process, called Cinemascope, would involve using a special anamorphic spherical lens to squeeze a 2.40 to 1 aspect ratio image onto a 1.33 to 1 Academy Ratio image space on a film and then unsqueeze the image when projected at the theater. The first Cinemascope movie, The Robe, would premiere at the Roxy Theater in New York City on September 16, 1953. Paramount's widescreen system, called VistaVision, would change how films were shot. Instead of the film running through a camera vertically, 
using a frame the size of four sprocket holes in height for each image captured, VistaVision would run the film through the camera horizontally using a frame of eight sprocket holes in length for each image captured. VistaVision would make its premiere with the Bing Crosby Danny K classic White Christmas, which opened in theaters on October 14, 1954. And then there was Cinerama, which was a whole completely different process that required three cameras side by side by side filming together at the same time, and three projectors at the theater perfectly kept in sync in order to show the three strips of film whose images were joined together on screen to create a massive image that literally felt like you were in the movie yourself. But each of these processes would require a massive upgrade to an existing theater or would require an entirely new theater to be built, as was the case with the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood in 1963. Cinerama would make its public debut at the Broadway Theater in New York City on September 30, 1952. But there was one far less expensive proposition to consider, one that wasn't tied to a specific studio, making movies in 3D. While the filmmakers would need to shoot their movies with two strips of film in separate cameras mounted in a way that the final image captured could mimic how the eyes see our world. For theater owners, the cost would be mostly limited to buying a new lens to put on the projector and replacing a flat white matte screen with one that was coated with a reflective silvery substance so that a 3D movie could be shown properly. The first theatrically released 3D movie of the 1950s was a cheapy adventure movie from United Artists called Buona Devil. The story was based on the Savo Maneaters, a pair of mountain lions who, in 1898, were responsible for the deaths of 135 construction workers who were trying to build a railroad bridge across the Savo River in Kenya. Future Untouchable star Robert Stack and Nigel Bruce, the Watson, to Basil Rathbone's Sherlock Holmes in a series of movies about the famed detective and his trusty sidekick, play the men in charge of building the railroad and trying to rid the scourges that are plaguing the mission. And if the story sounds familiar, as it might be reminding you of the Michael Douglas Val Kilmer movie, The Ghost in the Darkness, you'd be correct. That movie is also based on the same real-life incident, although it's told from the point of view of the hunters. The $323,000 Buona Devil, shot mostly in the San Fernando Valley, would make its premiere at the Paramount Theater in Hollywood and the Paramount Theater in downtown Los Angeles on Wednesday, November 26, 1952. Critics hated the film in part because it's not really a good movie, but the public loved it. Lured in by promises on the poster of a lion in your lap and a lover in your arms, Buona Devil grossed more than $5 million. But because this is Hollywood, United Artists would somehow end up claiming it lost about $200,000 releasing the film. Spurred on by the success of Buona Devil, studios would rush any movie they could into production that they thought could be made quickly and easily and in 3D. Warner Brothers would claim on their posters for their Vincent Price thriller House of Wax that it was the first 3D movie released by a major studio when it opened on April 10, 1953, and it's possible that might have been true when Warner's was planning the release and created the advertising for the film, but Columbia Pictures would slip their Edmund O'Brien noir thriller Man in the Dark, which had been shot in just 11 days, into theaters two days earlier. Man in the Dark is pretty much forgotten today, but House of Wax is actually a really entertaining movie 
and is still a fan favorite nearly 70 years later. Ironically, the director of House of Whack, André de Toth, was blind in his left eye. He wore an eye patch over it, and he couldn't even experience the movie he's most famous for the way he made it. But most of the 3D movies made during this time didn't focus on story, only trying to titillate its audiences with 3D tomfoolery. Outside of House of Wax, there's only one movie released in 3D that would remain beloved over the years. Universal's Creature from the Black Lagoon, part of its Universal Monster series. The film was so successful when it was released in 1954 that it would spawn the only 3D sequel made during this time frame, 1955's Revenge of the Creature, which was also a hit at the box office. But for the most part, 3D fell out of favor by the end of 1954 because the process required constant upkeep. There was one more famous movie shot in 3D during this first golden era of 3D movies, Alfred Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder with Grace Kelly, Ray Milland, and Robert Cummings. But the studio would make the film available to theaters either in 2D or 3D upon its release in May 1954, and only one theater in the entire nation would elect to screen it in 3D. A theater in Philadelphia, which after one preview show on May 18th and four regular shows on May 19th, petitioned the studio for them to send them a 2D print immediately. The film would not be seen again in 3D until a revival of the film was booked by the York Theater in San Francisco in February of 1980. I had the chance to see the 3D version of Dial M for Murder when I happened to be in Cleveland for three days in June 2017, visiting my mother, and the Cedar Lee Theater in Cleveland Heights was featuring it as a part of a 3D classic film series. It is one of the best 3D movies ever made, simply because Hitchcock was a master at cinema, and he made a movie that used 3D naturally, and not just as a gimmick. But the success of the 3D shows of Dial M for Murder in San Francisco in 1980 would spur a new interest in the format. But before we get there, it's important to note that 3D did have a minor resurgence in the early 70s, when several filmmakers employed in the porn industry shot their movies in 3D to help differentiate them from other porn films of the day. That 3D renaissance didn't last very long, as one can imagine, since porn films are usually shot on the cheap, and shooting in 3D would require more time and technical expertise behind the camera than quickie porn makers were willing to give it. Okay, let's get back to our main story. It's 1980, Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder has had a few successful playdates in 3D, and it would get noticed for all the wrong reasons. Clear on the other side of the country from San Francisco, Gene Quintano and Marshall Lupo had been friends and co-workers for years. They would meet while working for Xerox in Washington, D.C., before starting their own office supply company. But what they really wanted to do was make movies. They knew Tony Anthony, a veteran in the film industry who's best known as the stranger in a series of Italian-made spaghetti westerns in the late 1960s that MGM would buy and release in America to compete with the Clint Eastwood Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns being released by United Artists. The three men had been trying to figure out what they could do for a low-budget production that would help them stand out. Anthony's stock and trade were westerns, but outside of Eastwood, Nobody was making westerns anymore, and even Clint would go four or five years between westerns. But when Quintano heard about the sold-out screenings of Dial M for Murder in San Francisco, he mentioned it to his partners. 
An entire generation of filmgoers had never experienced a 3D movie, and they thought this could be something that would get people off of their couches and back into theaters. With some more research, Anthony discovered a newer 3D film process called Optimax 3, which would, instead of needing two cameras filming side by side, would shoot on a single strip of film, utilizing a special lens that would split the image into two slightly off-centered images stacked on top of each other within a traditional four-per frame of film. This way, the camera could move more fluidly around the action being filmed, and when projected on a movie screen through a mirror box, which through a pair of prisms and mirrors would converge the two stacked images and cross-polarize them so they could be seen properly by an audience wearing a special pair of polarized glasses. Within a few months, the trio had started their own production company, the Lupo Anthony Quintana Company. They had written a script, and they raised $3.5 million that they expected they would need to make this film through a series of cocktail parties in and around D.C. for potential investors. By September 1980, they were in Italy, making Coming At You with veteran Italian filmmaker Ferdinando Baldi, whose movies include the 1968 spaghetti western Django Prepare a Coffin, starring Terence Hill. Tony Anthony would star as H.H. Hart, a bank robber whose bride-to-be is kidnapped on their wedding day, and she is traded to the story's bad guy, Pike Thompson, played by Quintano. Spanish actress Victoria Abril, who would become world-famous years later as the star of four of Pedro Almodovar's late 80 and early 90s movies, would play the damsel in distress. The film shoot would last 13 weeks, and Tony Anthony would spend two months in Rome for post-production. Three days after he locked the film, Quintana and Lupo were in Los Angeles, anxiously awaiting Anthony's arrival at the airport, completed film in hand, where the first of 11 screenings at the first American film market in Santa Monica was scheduled to start a few hours after the plane had touched down. In fact, Quintana and Lupo would be seeing the final film for the first time, along with the potential buyers at that screening. They would sit in the back of the screening room, and they watched not only the movie, but the 45 or so potential buyers sitting in silent judgment on their first movie. And if this didn't work, possibly their last. But within a few hours of the first screening, offers started to pour into the offices of the sales company the men had hired to sell the movie to distributors around the world. Amongst the buyers was Filmway Pictures, a production and distribution company we briefly discussed back in 2020 on the first episode of our Orion Pictures miniseries. Filmways had been on somewhat of a roll of late, having seen some success with films like the comedy How to Beat the High Cost of Living, the first post-Saturday Night Live movie for Jane Curtin, the Brian De Palma thriller Dressed to Kill, and the first Deadly Sin starring Frank Sinatra and Faye Dunaway. Filmways would schedule the film for release in the heart of summer, July 24, 1981, but it would not be their only release that day, or even their biggest release that day. Continuing their partnership with Brian De Palma, Filmways would schedule a national release for his latest thriller, Blowout, starring John Travolta and Nancy Allen, but only schedule Coming At Ya for a single-screen release in Phoenix. Blowout would gross around $3 million from 300 screens nationwide, or about $10,000 per screen. Coming At Ya would gross $25,000 from that one theater in Phoenix. 
In its second week, blowout would fall to about a $9,000 per screen average, while coming at you would gross $20,000 from that single screen. After three weeks, as Blowout's theatrical play drew to a close, Filmways would add a second single-screen engagement for coming at you in Kansas City on August 14th, and the per-screen average would go back up to $21,000. This was enough to convince Filmways that maybe they were back in the wrong film. On August 21st, the company would open the film in 28 theaters in the New York City metropolitan area, and it would gross $750,000. For comparison's sake, John Landis's An American and Werewolf in London also opened in New York City on August 21st, and it also grossed $750,000, but from 43 theaters. In Chicago, Coming At You would gross $290,000 from 14 theaters, while Werewolf would gross $220,000 from 19 theaters. In St. Louis, Coming At You would gross $50,000 from four theaters. In Seattle, $22,000 from just one screen. From 105 theaters in total nationwide, the film would gross $1.132 million. The following week, Coming At You would open in Los Angeles in 25 theaters and would gross $281,000. It would add another 50 screens in other markets and gross another $1.586 million. And in week seven, it would add another $1.227 million from 202 theaters. But after Labor Day weekend, the film was mostly played out. Week 8 would see the movie lose 10% of its theaters from 202 to 180, but it would see its ticket sales drop 64% to $439,000. Week 9 would see the theater account drop from 180 to 99, and the gross would fall to $238,000. And by the end of September, Coming at you was pretty much gone from theaters. Filmways had spent $2 million buying the rights to the movie and another $2 million to promote it, and it would be rewarded with a $12 million box office gross, which would give it a nice little profit of around $2 million. But Filmways would soon be out of business and sold to Orion Pictures because of movies like Blowout, which had also grossed $12 million at the box office, but it cost $18 million to produce and another $4 million to promote. The success of Coming At You would, like Buona Devil had nearly 30 years earlier, kick off a rush of movies that would be rushed into production and could find ways to utilize the 3D process. In fact, within three months of the release of Coming At You, no less than 20 movies were announced to begin production soon as 3D productions, although many of them, including several concert movies and a suspense thriller from Chicago stage director Robert Sickinger called The Louisiana Swamp-like murders, and an airplane-like horror spoof called Scary Movie, would never happen. Sadly, the list of unrealized 3D movies announced during this era included a 3D version of the off-Broadway musical Little Shop of Horrors, which would have been produced by David Geffen and Steven Spielberg, and directed by Martin Scorsese. Geffen would produce a non-3D version of the film in 1986, directed by Frank Oz, which is still quite a good film. But one can only imagine how much different it would have been in 3D under the guidance of Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg. The first film out of the gate after coming at you would be Parasite, an early production of future Empire Pictures head Charles Band. We did a three-part series on Charles Band and Empire Pictures in early 2021. 
Band had spent years trying to find a picture he could get made after his previous film, 1976's Crash, bombed at the box office. Shortly after the premiere of Coming At You, Band was at a Hollywood party where he would meet a trio of writers, Alan Adler, Frank Levering, and Michael Schub, who had been bouncing around an idea about a scientist who was trying to cure himself of a new strain of parasite in a post-apocalyptic America. Band loved the idea, and while the three writers got to work on completing their screenplay, Band was able to get Erwin Yablons, the producer of the original Halloween movie, to agree to finance the $800,000 movie and allow it to be shot in 3D and distribute it through his own company, Compass International. How quickly would the film come together? Remember, Coming At You only opened in theaters in late July and didn't go into a wider release until late August. But Band would have the film written, cast, and in production by early September 1981, with the hopes of getting the film into theaters by January 1982. The cast is filled with a weird mix of nobodies and slightly somebodies, including former Runaways lead singer Cherry Curry, who had been trying to make it as an actress after the band broke up. Co-star Luca Bercovici would go on to co-write and direct Ghoulies for Charles Band in 1984, but the only person you'll actually likely recognize from the cast is Demi Moore, for whom this was only her second acting role ever. Filming around Los Angeles, Parasite would only need 21 days to be completed. And within three weeks of finishing production, while Band was still deep into editing his first cut of the film, Yablons would sell the worldwide theatrical distribution rights to the movie to Embassy Pictures and the home video rights to Media Home Entertainment, where he would make a decent profit on his investment before the film was even in any kind of viewable shape. Embassy Pictures decided that rushing Parasite into theaters just after New Year's probably wasn't the best idea. So they opted to wait until March 1982, hoping that no one would rush their 3D films past them. No one did, and Parasite would open in 68 theaters in New York City on March 12th, where it would gross an okay $601,000. By the time the film worked its way around the country before opening in Los Angeles on May 21st, The movie would already gross more than $5.5 million, and the filmmakers were already planning to make a sequel. The Los Angeles opening would add another $378,000 in the coffers from 43 theaters. And when the film was all played out, it would sell nearly $7.5 million worth of tickets, nearly 10 times its production cost. Not bad, but not good enough for a sequel to ever materialize. The next 3D movie would be the first established title to incorporate 3D, and its success would set off an unfortunate subwave of Part 3 movies to become Part 3s in 3D. Although it was not as successful as the first film, 1981's Friday the 13th Part 2 was successful enough for Paramount Pictures to greenlight a third episode. To prove just how lazy the production had already become, the producers decided to literally rip off Halloween 2 when they started to develop Friday the 13th Part 3. In the original story for this film, Ginny, the Laurie Strode of the Friday the 13th series, survives her attack by her masked assailant, and she is sent to a hospital to recover from her trauma. And while she's in the hospital, she starts to believe her attacker is still alive, which no one believes until the body count in the hospital 
starts to rise. But when Amy Steele, the actress who portrayed Ginny, decided not to make the film, that storyline would be thrown out, and a new one was written that would feature a new set of characters who were completely uninvolved with the storylines from the first two films outside of Jason, and some archive footage of Mrs. Voorhees from Part 1, and Ginny and another character from Part 2. And then when Coming At You became a success, the screenplay would be further altered to make Jason's kills be more visually resplendent in 3D. One thing that became clear to the actors while making the movie was that their performances really didn't matter as long as they were acting or reacting in deference to the 3D effects. If the planned effect shot worked the first time out, that was the shot, and the production would move on to the next setup, even if the actors' performances were subpar. And the final product proves this to be the case. Without the 3D effects, it's a really stupid movie. With the 3D effects, it's still not a great movie, but at least some of the kills are memorable. And that's really the only reason to go see a movie like this. Ironically, the most lasting legacy of Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D was the introduction of Jason Voorhees' signature hockey mask. When the movie was released into 1,079 theaters on Friday, August 13, 1982, Paramount had a hit. Audiences devoured the movie and its cheesy 3D effects. It would gross $9.4 million in its first weekend and would become only the second movie after The Best Little Horror House in Texas to keep E.T. from claiming the top spot at the box office since that movie opened 10 weeks earlier. E.T. would become the number one film again the following week. But Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D would only lose 43% of its opening week audience, a smaller than average drop for a second week horror film. Horror movies regularly lose more than 50% of its audience from week to week, but that wouldn't happen for Part 3 until its fifth week of release. It would continue to play in theaters until early 1983, finishing its 24-week run with an impressive $36.7 million box office gross, which, unadjusted for inflation, is still the second highest grossing movie in the original series, only behind the first Friday the 13th from 1980. Buoyed by the success of Coming At You, Gene Quintana, Marshall Lupo, and Tony Anthony were able to get their next 3D production funded and in production much quicker. Many of the investors in Coming At You signed on to help fund the then-titled Seein' Is Believin', allowing their returns from the first film to be rolled into the second film. Director Ferdinando Baldi would return to make this film, and he would work with the camera and lens producer Aeroflex to fabricate new lenses to make this production run smoother. In an ironic twist, with so many producers chasing the 3D wave set off by the success of Coming At You, Quintana, Lupo, and Anthony were chasing the action-adventure wave set off by the success of Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was made after their movie, but released two months before theirs. Tony Anthony once again played the lead, this time as J.T. Stryker, a soldier of fortune who has been hired to track down a series of mystical crowns which, if brought together, are said to bring their holder immeasurable power. The movie would be shot in Italy during the summer of 1982, the remainder of its $2 million budget covered by Filmways, the distributor of Coming At You. But shortly after the film went into production, Filmways would go out of business and would sell itself to Orion Pictures, 
who mainly wanted Filmways for its already established distribution pipeline. Orion wasn't really interested in 3D movies, so they put the movie up for sale. Canon Films, who was in desperate need for films to fill their distribution pipeline, would make a negative pickup deal, essentially reimbursing Orion for the development and production costs of the movie that they didn't even make. Orion would also get a small cut of the ticket sales as part of the deal. Canon would rename Seeing is Believing to the more action-sounding The Treasure of the Four Crowns and set a January 21st, 1983 release date, five months after the release of Friday the 13th Part 3. Would the public appetite for 3D still exist by then? Well, yes, and no. The movie would open on 113 screens in New York City and Los Angeles, and after its first three days, it would gross $1.045 million. Not quite $10,000 per screen, but it would be a higher average than Gandhi, which went into wide release the same weekend. Granted, one could fit two shows of Treasure of the Four Crowns into the running time of one show of Gandhi, but it was still a decent showing. In its second week, the gross for Treasure of the Four Crowns would drop only 37%, and its 10-day gross had already topped $2 million. The movie would open in 275 theaters in Atlanta, Charlotte, Cincinnati, Detroit, Jacksonville, Louisville, Portland, Oregon, Salt Lake City, San Francisco, and Seattle on February 11th, and it would gross another $1.25 million. And in early March, Canon would stop reporting grosses just shy of a $6 million total gross after seven weeks, or roughly half of what Coming At You had made in theaters. Interestingly enough, in early March 1983, while Treasure of the Four Crown was becoming a minor success for Canon, Orion Pictures announced that during that month's American film market, they had purchased the American distribution rights to Return of the Living Dead a new 3D offering loosely based on the George A. Romero classic, Night of the Living Dead. By the time the film came out in the summer of 1985, though, the idea of making it in 3D had long since passed. The next big 3D test was Columbia Pictures' Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Produced by Ivan Reitman, Space Hunter was originally planned as a one-story sequel to his 1981 animated anthology movie Heavy Metal, with the title Adventures from the Creep Zone, and Reitman considered making it in 3D, which at the time would have been a novelty in an animated 3D movie, because none had been made yet. But when it came time to produce the film, Reitman decided it would be better to produce it as a live-action film than an animated film. It would be less expensive and, more importantly, less time-consuming. And if the animation was gone the 3D aspect would be gone, too. Jeff Bridges had supposedly been cast as Wolf, the space cowboy at the center of the story, alongside Molly Ringwald, who was still a year away from becoming John Hughes' first muse, Ernie Hudson, Andrea Marcovici, and Michael Ironside. But either Bridges left the movie, or he was never officially cast in the role, because when production began on the film in October 1982, it was Peter Strauss, who would be playing Wolf. Ernie Hudson would in fact get cast in Ghostbusters in large part because Reitman liked what he was seeing in the dailies. But that was about the only thing Reitman would like about the early dailies from the set. 
and the studio didn't like what they were seeing either. After two weeks of shooting, director John Lafleur was let go, and the production stopped while they looked for a new director. While they were interviewing several new directors, Reitman and Columbia Pictures decided to go ahead and toss out all the original footage shot for the film and restart from day one, shooting the movie in 3D. They would increase the budget from $6 million to $12 million, and they would add another three and a half weeks to the shooting schedule. Veteran filmmaker Lamont Johnson, whose 25-year career included such movies as the Jeff Bridges racing film The Last American Hero and the Margot Hemingway rape and revenge thriller Lipstick, would be hired to take over, and the film would resume production in November for another 10 weeks of shooting. This time, the executives and the producer really liked what they saw. Columbia would invest another $2 million in specialty 3D spherical lenses so theaters playing the film could show it properly. They would also commit to creating a number of 70mm prints, which would hopefully indicate to discernible filmgoers that this was a major production, like Return of the Jedi or Blue Thunder. And one could say it worked, at least at first. Columbia would open Space Hunter on May 20, 1983, and originally planned for it to play in eight to 900 theaters. When opening day did come around, they were able to get the film into 1,338 theaters, with more than two-thirds of them playing the film in 3D. You must remember, drive-in theaters were still a fairly sizable part of the exhibition market back then, and you just can't play a 3D movie at a drive-in for a wide variety of reasons. Space Hunter would open to first place that weekend with a gross of more than $7 million. And despite the fact that Return of the Jedi would open just five days later and would set a then-record opening week gross of $41 million in its first six days of release, Space Hunter would drop a lower-than-expected 35% in its second week of release. But in its third week, the film would lose 65% of its second-week audience, and by weekend number four, it wouldn't even gross half a million dollars. That would be the last weekend Columbia would report grosses for the film, with a final total pegged at $16.5 million. If there was a film that was expected to be the big 3D movie of the summer, it would have been Jaws 3. It was the second sequel to the film that, for a couple of years, was the highest-grossing film of all time, and demand for another Jaws film was strong from international exhibitors. The road to Jaws 3 was a long and arduous one. In April 1979, less than a year after Jaws 2 had been released to strong box office numbers, Universal announced a third film in the series. Not that much of a surprise. The surprising part of the announcement was with whom they were going to make it with. After finding unexpected success with National Lampoon's Animal House in 1978, Universal planned on making the third Jaws movie as a joint production with National Lampoon. Lampoon president Matty Simmons had pitched the studio of a comedy for a third Jaws movie with the title Jaws 3, People Zero. The movie would have centered around a fictional studio called Universal Studios, headed by a fictional version of Universal Studios' chief operating officer, Sid Sheinberg, to be played by real Universal Studios CEO, Sid Sheinberg, as they attempted to make a second sequel to Jaws, often with deadly comedic results. Lampoon writers Todd Carroll and John Hughes wrote six drafts of the script over the course of six months, 
with a planned shooting date set for October 7, 1979. But Universal got cold feet and decided this wasn't the way they wanted to go. Now remember, had this version of Jaws 3 gone into production in October 1979, it would have been ready for release in the summer of 1980, around the same time as another parody of a certain type of movie was being released into theaters, Airplane. Instead, it would take Universal another three years to finally feel comfortable with an idea for Jaws 3. Now, we would follow Mike Brody, Chief Brody's older son, as he investigates a series of shark attacks inside a water amusement park in Florida. Roy Scheider, Chief Brody in the first two films, would not appear in this movie. Nor would Lorraine Gray, the real-life wife, the real-life wife of Universal Studios COO Sid Scheinberg, who played Mrs. Brody. Steven Spielberg did not have any involvement in the making of Jaws 3, just as he had nothing to do with Jaws 2. Nor did David Brown or Richard Zanuck, the producers of the first two films in the series. In fact, about the only person involved in the production of Jaws 3 who had any involvement in the first two films was director Joe Alves, who was the production designer on the first two films and the second unit director on the second film. Carl Gottlieb, who co-wrote the screenplay for the original film with Jaws novelist Peter Benchley, is credited as a co-writer on Jaws 3, but he insists very little, if anything, from his drafts made it into the final film. Dennis Quaid stars as Mike Brody, and Bess Armstrong, who had just made a splash in her first lead role opposite Tom Selleck in The High Road to China, stars as the senior marine biologist at the aqua park that's having a shark problem. Jaws 3 would be the first film Louis Gossett Jr. would make after An Officer and a Gentleman, but his star would not rise with his Oscar win for Best Supporting Actor for Officer until after he was done shooting Jaws 3. And future Back to the Future star Leah Thompson would make her movie debut here as one of the water skier entertainers at the park. She would get the job by lying to the producers, saying that she had been in several movies and that she knew how to water ski. Like with Jaws 2, a plethora of merchandising tie-ins were created for Jaws 3. My personal favorite are the Jaws 3D trading cards from Topps. Each pack would contain six cards and a stick of bubblegum, which was fairly standard for a pack of trading cards for the day. Most movie trading cards would have a glossy color photo from the movie on one side and a description of the scene on the back. What made these cards unique and fun was that on the back, instead of a scene write-up, was a red and blue anaglyph 3D image from the movie which could be used to see the scene in 3D with the enclosed pair of 3D glasses. Head over to this episode's page on my website, filmjerk.com, to see pictures of the Jaws 3D cards from my personal collection. Jaws 3 would open in 1,300 theaters on July 22, 1983, and, as expected, it was big right out of the gate. Its $13.4 million opening weekend was the second biggest of all movies so far that summer, after Return of the Jedi. The novelty of a Jaws movie in 3D certainly brought in the crowds, but the reality was that while the 3D effects were just fine during the daytime scenes or inside well-lit indoor spaces, the difficulty of lighting underwater scenes well enough to properly make the 3D effects pop forced the production to shoot special effects plates for scenes with the shark where the underwater backgrounds are in 2D 
and the shark is green-screened into the scene in 3D. Those scenes, the one audiences were coming out for, were painful to watch. Word of mouth got out very quickly about how bad the 3D effects were for the film, and the audience would drop from 45 to 60% each week until Universal stopped tracking it after seven weeks and $42.245 million of tickets sold. But for more than 20 years, Jaws 3D would be the highest-grossing 3D movie ever made. One movie that would not threaten Jaws 3D for that record was The Man Who Wasn't There. No, not the black-and-white Coen Brothers movie with Bill Bob Thornton, but this mirthless comedy starring Steve Gutenberg as a government bureaucrat who accidentally takes possession of a top-secret invisibility potion and general wackiness ensues when he takes the formula to get away from some generic Russian baddies who want to take possession of it. I'm not picking on Steve Gutenberg, but outside of Diner, he had a horrible record of choosing material during this time frame, and this movie was no different. One telltale sign of how to tell if a movie is going to be really bad is how long did it take to make. The less time it takes to produce a film, the lower the quality usually is. The Man Who Wasn't There would start shooting in Los Angeles on March 7, 1983, finish shooting eight weeks later, and would be released into theaters barely 12 weeks after that on August 12th. That's not a good sign. And the reviews for the film were not good. In the New York Times, Lawrence Van Gelder started his review comparing watching the film to having one's eyes sucked out of their head like pimentos from a pair of olives, while Sheila Benson of the Los Angeles Times would point out that Gutenberg's career, which began with the Village People movie monstrosity Can't Stop the Music, and now continued with this film, was akin to being struck by lightning multiple times and living to tell about it. Opening in 1,200 theaters, The Man Who Wasn't There could also be an apt description of the audience, because it grossed only $1.4 million. Paramount would stop reporting grosses after its second weekend, after 10 days and only $2.3 million in tickets. Instead of making that planned sequel to Parasite a few moments ago we were talking about, Charles Band would jump at the chance to make the science fiction western Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin. Well, maybe jumped is too strong a word, as Father Albert, a filmmaker himself, would raise the $3.5 million he and Charlie had budgeted to make the film. Albert would take an executive producer credit. Charles would co-produce with Alan Adler, who had written the screenplay for this and was one of the writers on Parasite. And they would begin production on the film in Simi Valley, about a half hour north of Los Angeles, and in Palm Springs in February 1983. The cast would include cult fan favorite Jeffrey Byron, Michael Preston from The Road Warrior, Richard Mull, who was about to become semi-famous as Bull on the NBC sitcom Night Court, and Kelly Preston in one of her first movie roles. But for Empire Picture fans, this film would signify the first time Charles Band would work with comedian Tim Thomerson. After Metal Storm, Band and Thomerson would work together several more times, most notably on the Trancers movie series, five of which would get produced between 1984 and 1994. In this film, Byron plays Dogen, 
A space ranger searching the galaxy for Jared Sin, an intergalactic criminal with supernatural powers. There is something about crystals and sky bikes and cyclopses, but it's all rather silly. But Universal Pictures saw something in the footage they viewed when the bands took a product reel to the 1983 Cannes Film Festival. Studio president Robert Ream would pick the film up for U.S. distribution and would schedule the film for an August 19th release as long as the bands delivered the final film on time. The studio would also make sure to have a 3D trailer for the film in front of all 1,241 3D prints of Jaws 3, one of the few times a 3D trailer would be commissioned for a 3D movie. But when it came time to open Metal Storm in theaters, Universal took a cautious approach, only opening the film in 549 theaters, where it would gross an okay $2.02 million. In week two, they would expand the film from 549 theaters to 784, but the weekend gross would fall to $1.27 million. And after its third weekend, where it would lose 471 theaters and see its gross drop to less than half a million, Universal would stop tracking the film. The first look deal Universal had signed with the bands when they acquired the movie was terminated, and Albert and Charles Band would go about building their own production and distribution company, Empire Pictures. And ever the student of the Roger Corman School of Low-Budget Filmmaking, Band would take unused footage from Metal Storm and recycle it into one of his first Empire movies, The Dungeon Master. Rottweiler would be the first of six 3D movies to be produced and released by Earl Owensby, a North Carolina-based actor, filmmaker, and independent distributor, who is affectionately called the redneck Roger Corman by his fans. Superfans of James Cameron's The Abyss know Owensby as the man who helped build the underwater sets for the film at an abandoned nuclear power plant Owensby had recently purchased in South Carolina with the eye of turning it into a movie studio. Story has it that Owensby had seen coming at you while it was making its way through the South in early 1982, and, sensing that it was going to be around a while, purchased a number of 3D stereovision lenses made by Chris Condon. Other stories, such as one told by the film's director, Worth Keeler, Rottweiler started production in the summer of 1981, Around the time Kamenachia was released into that lone theater in Phoenix, a good 2,000 miles away from where they were shooting at Owensby's mini-studio in Shelby, North Carolina. Owensby here would neither write nor direct Rottweiler, but instead would star as the local sheriff who was called on to protect his small and peaceful mountain resort town when it is overrun by a pack of Rottweilers who have been bred and trained by the U.S. military to kill humans. Also known as the Dogs of Hell, Rottweiler would see a southern regional release in September 1983. But based on my research, it appears that all of his 3D movies only ever had one theatrical play date in 3D at the Rogers Theater in Shelby, North Carolina, about six miles from the Owensby studio. As I mentioned before, Owensby would make five other 3D movies besides Rottweiler over the remainder of the decade. Like Rottweiler, they would all be filmed in and around the Carolinas for budgets never exceeding a million dollars and would pretty much only be released in the southern United States, and then mostly as the B title at drive-ins supporting a bigger studio movie. The bulk of Owensby's money 
would come from sales to countries like Germany that would gobble up American movies like there was no tomorrow. So we're going to take a short detour and talk about the other Earl Owens B. Studios 3D movies real quick to get them out of the way. Hot Air, H-E-I-R, also known as The Great Balloon Chase, was a more family-friendly film which finds a 30-something man needing to get involved in a hot air balloon race after the death of his uncle in order to gain his part of an inheritance. The movie would be shot in the summer of 1982, but not open in theaters in the South until February 1984. Tales from the Third Dimension was a horror anthology composed of three short horror stories with wraparound segments written and directed by Owensby. The host of those wraparounds was Igor, a sarcastic little skeletal ghoul inspired by the Crypt Keeper from the EC horror comics of the 1950s, a few years before HBO would start to produce Tales from the Crypt, which was hosted by the Crypt Keeper from the EC horror comics of the 1950s. Tales from the Third Dimension was shot during the summer of 1983 and would see a southern regional release in April 1984. Chain Gang, which is probably best described as Cool Hand Luke meets the Shawshank Redemption, finds Owen B. framed for murder and needing to escape from prison and ending up working at the massive estate of the guy who framed him. Chain Gang would shoot for 12 weeks during the fall of 1983 and would see a southern regional release in June of 1984. Hyperspace, also known as Gremloids, is the outlier in the Earl Ownsby Studio of Voix, a science fiction comedy featuring actors you've actually heard of outside of the South. A spoof of Star Wars, Hyperspace, also known as Gremloids, would find the helmeted Lord Buckethead accidentally landing on Earth instead of a planet in a galaxy far, far away. His Jawa-like minions try to inform Lord Buckethead of his mistake, but every attempt to do so seems to end with execution for their insolence. Owensby wasn't particularly fond of casting name actors in his movies, but he would make an exception on this one. Comedian Paula Poundstone played an employee at a local repair shop who Lord Buckethead mistakes for the princess he's looking for, and Chris Elliott plays another citizen of the small town Lord Buckethead has landed in. Hyperspace, also known as Gremloids, was produced during the spring of 1984 and would see a southern release in September of 1984. It was originally going to be distributed in the theaters by MGM UA, but they would decide against it after seeing the final product. The movie would also be released in the United Kingdom, and in a strange twist of fate, Lord Buckethead would become a minor figure in British politics. Mike Lee, the owner of the video company that released Hyperspace, also known as Gremloids, on video in Britain, would adopt the visage of Lord Buckethead and run against Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher on a campaign to completely demolish the town of Birmingham to make room for a spaceport. Lord Buckethead would actually receive 131 votes from the constituents in the one district he ran in, the same district that Thatcher was from in North London. Lee, as Lord Buckethead, would also run against them Prime Minister John Major in 1992, and he would receive 107 votes. 25 years later, British comedian Jonathan Harvey, a fan of the movie Hyperspace, also known as Gremloids, 
would dress up as Lord Buckethead and run against then-Prime Minister Theresa May and receive 249 votes. Lord Buckethead would also appear on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and at the Glastonbury Music Festival to introduce the Sleaford Mods. After all of this, the film's writer and director, Todd Durham, would assert his ownership of the character and would allow future potential candidates apply to become Lord Buckethead. In 2019, another British comedian, David Hughes, would run against then-Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but this time Lord Buckethead would only get 125 votes. There's one more Earl Owensby 3D movie to talk about, but we'll get to that soon. Because before we get there, there's two more forgettable 3D movies that we need to talk about real quick. The first, like Friday the 13th and Jaws, is a horror film of sorts that relies on its being the third in a series as an excuse to be shot in 3D. We spent some time talking about Amityville 3 in the second episode of our five-part Orion miniseries back in 2020. It's not a direct sequel to the previous two movies, as there was a legal disagreement between the Lutz family and film producer Dano De Laurentiis, but it does take the series in a new direction by making the Amityville house the star of the show. The 3D effects are fairly decent, as the film's director, Richard Fleischer, had directed the 3D western arena back in 1953. But today, the film is barely a footnote in film history as being the first major movie roles for both Lori Laughlin and Meg Ryan. The film would open in 1,254 theaters on November 18, 1983, and it would take first place, albeit with an anemic $2.37 million gross. And like many other 3D movies, it would see an immediate drop in grosses after the initial group of movie fans, ready to gobble up any 3D movie, Orion would stop tracking the movie after 17 days and only $6.32 million in ticket sales. And it would be another 25 months before the next 3D movie would be released into theaters. Not that anyone expected much from the animated movie Star Chaser, The Legend of Orin. It was only the second animated movie to ever be made in 3D, the first being a 1983 Australian movie called Abracadabra, a retelling of the Pied Piper of Hamelin story featuring the voices of John Farnham and Jackie Weaver, of which there is so little information about that I can only include it as a mention of it here, as it seemingly was never released outside of Australia, and even the Australian Centre for the Moving Images describes it as rarely seen. Made in South Korea, Star Chaser is a sci-fi adventure about a young boy named Orin who works as a slave in a subterranean mine who discovers a powerful sword embedded in the ore. After escaping the mine, he teams with a cynical space pilot and a beautiful princess to defeat the evil Lord Zygon, and you don't really need me to tell you what the rest of it's about because you already know exactly where it's going to go. The $15 movie would be released into 1,020 theaters on November 22, 1985 from a little independent distributor called Atlantic Releasing, whose biggest movies after a number of years in operation included Valley Girl, Night of the Comet, and Teen Wolf. But audiences weren't all that interested in Star Chaser. It would open in sixth place with $1.6 million behind the Indiana Jones wannabe King Solomon's Mines from Canon Films, and even Back to the Future, which was still going strong after 21 weeks in release. 
And like many of the movies we discussed on this episode, the distributor would stop tracking it after three weeks of release, with just a little more than $6 million in ticket sales. The sixth and final 3D production from Earl Ownsby Studios to get a theatrical release would also hold the ignoble title of being the final 3D movie to be released in the 1980s. Hit the Road Runnin' was literally a mashup of the Dukes of Hazard TV series and the Smokey and the Bandit movies, with Owensby playing Bandit Luke Duke, I mean, Bo Jim Donner, a guy who comes back to his small hometown and becomes the Smokey, I mean, a deputy sheriff, in order to stop a local unscrupulous tycoon from buying up the entire town. Hit the Road Runnin' was actually filmed in the spring of 1983, before Tales of the Third Dimension, or Chain Gang, or Hyperspace, also known as Gremloids, and it would see a southern regional release in March of 1987, with, again, only one 3D playdate to speak of in Owensby's hometown. And with that, we say goodbye to the 3D craze of the 1980s, where the damn thing should have been kept. I lament the return of 3D in the mid-2000s, nearly a full decade before it was due to pop up again. Pun only somewhat intended. The truth of the matter is, the 3D movies of the current era were easier to watch thanks to the widespread acceptance and installation of digital projection systems, which could better exhibit separate left and right eye images and thereby reducing the eye strain that made watching older 3D movies nearly unbearable. I don't hate 3D as long as it's well done and done well. The 2009 concert movie U2 3D and the 3D version of Martin Scorsese's masterful 2011 film Hugo are two of the very few movies that benefited from being shot or converted into 3D for theatrical release. But just like in the 1950s and the 1980s, the 3D craze of the mid-2000s has finally died off for the most part because, once again, most of the productions using 3D did not really benefit from being in 3D and were often made in the modern era as an extra cash grab for the studios. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again in two weeks when episode 75 is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, filmjerk.com, for extra materials about the movies we've covered on this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.